Al-Jazeera podcast. I'm Cyril Vanier, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Anger and frustration in China as repeated COVID-19 lockdowns hurt economic activity and isolate millions of people. So why does Beijing persist with its strict policy while the rest of the world is moving on? This is Inside Story. Let's bring in our guests. Einar Tangen, a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, a think tank based in Beijing. In Taipei, Alicia Garcia Herrero, chief economist for Asia Pacific at the French investment bank Natixis. And in London, Oksana Pijik. You are at University College London, where you lead the Global Citizenship Program on Outbreaks of Infectious Diseases. Thank you all so much for being with us. First question to you, Einar. The rest of the world is learning to live with COVID. Is it time for China to do the same? Well, China's been fairly successful at what it's uh, been doing. I mean, it, it ranks like 80, it's number one in the world in terms of population, but ranks 89th in terms of the number of deaths. Um, you know, if you start looking at the, uh, you know, at the current situation, yes, they have 30,000 cases, an absolute huge spike for China standards. But right now, uh, many nations aren't even keeping track. And in Japan, third largest economy in the world, it had over 60,000. Uh, cases and uh, about 130 deaths compared to uh, three in in, uh, in China. So China has a lot uh, in terms of its past. The question is, what does it do about the future? People keep saying, let's move on. That's like saying, let's move on from climate change. Uh, the, the virus is the virus. Uh, you're seeing over 300 variants out there, plus long COVID is really hitting people. A lot of people hard. About 3% still have symptoms one year afterwards. Uh, the Chinese uh, government is concerned about being overwhelmed uh, with uh, you know, its medical system and having people dying in the streets. You know, this is a socialist country. They tend to put uh, people first. Uh, obviously, in a, in a capitalist economy, they put the economy first. So it's, it's, it's a difference of opinion in terms of policy and culture. Well, you say they put people first, but a lot of people are fed up. That's something we're going to have to explore. But I, I want to go to Oksana first. Oksana, from a public health standpoint, what happens if China relaxes its anti-COVID measures? Well, there are several things. And first of all, the elderly population, um, there's a big vaccine gap there. And also just the types of vaccines that are being used. So we do see that the mRNA Pfizer type vaccine is more efficacious. So there is a reduced, let's say, protective element. I think there's a really important uh, next step is to, to drive up that vaccination rate, particularly in the most vulnerable sections of society and switching which public health tools they are using um, to protect their people. So uh, there will be, again, a bit of an immunity vulnerability gap in this uh, area just because they have, through uh, quite extreme measures, been able to, compared to other countries, keep uh, cases relatively low. However, long term, (laughs) we do see that COVID is endemic. So any, it does mean that there's going to be a situation in which we, the, unless there are other tools used, you can't go on locking down uh, permanently. You have to balance public health measures. Public health is not just about COVID. Public health is about other diseases too. And if people's health start to suffer because there's an obsession with just COVID, that's not a healthy public health policy. 
Okay, I think there's a key word in what you just said, which is balance. And that's what this entire conversation on many levels is going to be about. Let's bring in another aspect that needs to be balanced in, and factored into all of this. Uh, Alicia, what is zero COVID? What are Beijing's zero po- COVID policies doing to China's economy? Well, uh, as of 2022, we have estimated zero COVID policies, i.e. restrictions in mobility, basically any kind of lockdown or, or other measures to have wiped out as much as 2.3 percentage points of growth. In other words, if China ends the year, which is likely at around 3%, you would be imagining growth possibly having been much closer to the official target it would have been 5.2, you know, close to 5.5, which was the target. So in a way, one could even say that because of zero COVID, China has missed the growth target. But I can understand that that might be less important than saving lives and everything else. So, But I'm just saying it is costly. That's very clear. All right. So at the outset of this conversation, we see that there are competing factors that need to be balanced. There's economic growth, of course. There's how you do it. There's how people feel about it. Um, all of these need to be factored in. And Einar, you, you, you said that in a socialist system, people are prioritized over the economy. I want to read to you a quote. This is just something that we pulled off the Chinese social media network, Weibo. Uh, it was written today. It was written on November 24th. It says this, quote, It's been three years. I've never questioned our policy. But now, looking at how everything is still the same as three years ago, endless lockdowns, awful hospital food, and I turn around to see the cheerful crowd at the World Cup, not a single person was wearing a mask, I can't help but ask, is China the only place on Earth with COVID outbreaks now? Einar, how do you, how does Beijing say to the 1.4 billion Chinese, look, some of you, many of you, millions amongst you are having to suffer lockdowns that are decided overnight that can be uh, really drastic, and the rest of the world has somehow found a formula to avoid these? Well, they haven't found a formula. I mean, the U.S. has lost three years of longevity since 2019. So there's been a cost. There's a million, uh, over six and a half million people dead. I, I think that's also a cost. I mean, you can't blithely just say, well, you know, what the heck? You know, everyone else is dying. Who cares? Uh, that's that's a rather callous attitude. In terms of the frustration, it's real. I can tell you, I'm in Beijing right now. I'm under lockdown. I mean, this is the reality of, of, of a different system. Now, you, you can say, oh, I don't like it. Uh, China should do this. But China's done pretty well, uh, you know, through, through this entire period. They're the only country uh, that's been consistently growing during this whole period. Uh, they've managed the things fairly well. So, saying that, oh, we don't like what you're doing because it's hurting us because we've been irresponsible in our, you know, in our approach to this, kind of nonsense. I mean, uh, yeah, there has to be but some I, sort I think of the, I think the question is, about. I hear your argument about how China has done so far and about limiting the number of deaths, but I think the question now is, okay, we're three years on from, you know, the moment when initially the virus was detected in China, how do we move on to the next phase of virus containment? Because this is not going away. Uh, and that, that, I, think, I think everyone would agree that it's possible to move to the next phase. 
Well, yeah, and, and that's what China's trying to do. I mean, what they, the reason they've had more cases is because they haven't used these blunt instruments, the sledgehammer approach that they had before, where they'd lock down an entire city until they had isolated every single case and stamped it out. Uh, right now, they're trying to be more surgical in their approach. Uh, in Beijing, they, you know, they try resisted from having uh, wholesale lockdowns. They would uh, go to communities and say, you lock down for five days instead of, you know, the usual three weeks. Um, and they, they've been trying to adjust, but it hasn't necessarily been producing the same results. But, you know, I, I'd like to ask you, why is it that everyone's talking about China with 30,000 cases when Japan has 60,000 cases a day and, and literally, uh, you know, uh, 50 times, uh, no, 30 times more uh, deaths? It doesn't seem to bother anybody uh, out there, and it's not a topic for conversation. So from Beijing's point of view, they're struggling to do this. You think that they don't want economic growth? I mean, this has been the, the main hallmark of the entire uh, Chinese economy for the last 40 years. So, I mean, this idea that they're doing this to frustrate their, uh, uh, you know, their citizens is nonsense. Uh, the fact that, you know, we're discussing this now as if it's a major issue when there are much larger ones out there, is kind, it kind of indicates a, a media bias, don't you think? Well, what I think is, I think one reason we're discussing it is because we're seeing what you might describe as unprecedented social unrest across the country. It's not just one city. Where? It's not just two cities. It's several dozen cities. Where? And you're in a country where, where people, in a country no, where? where people are not used to, I beg your pardon? Cyril, I, I respect you, but be specific. You're talking about Zhengzhou, where a, a Taiwanese company, Foxconn, yeah, All Fox, right. did it's not, not pay just the Fox wages gone. that it promised, it's, and you had uh, riots there. So, what other social unrest are you talking about? I, I know it's Be not. Specific. It's not just Foxconn. We've seen pictures emerging out of China from multiple cities in a country Where? that doesn't normally allow. Where? Them. What cities? And look, you, what cities are you talking about? I, I'm not, I follow the news. I haven't seen it. Well, I, and I do have a VPN, so I follow everything. I follow the news too, and I've seen it. And I'm not going to be able to remember the cities, not owing to the not owing to the fact that they don't exist, owing to the fact that I don't remember long lists of Chinese amounts city of social names. media. I would agree with that. There's frustration across the board on social media. Okay, but being frustrated is not the same thing as denying it. It's like saying I'm frustrated about global warming. I want to move on, but global warming is a fact, just like. The pandemic is a fact. So, and as you know, as our expert uh, in in uh, medicine pointed out, this is going to continue. The question is, how do you continue? China does not have the medical resources that you have in the U.S. or even in Japan and South Korea. They okay, would be overwhelmed so that's precisely the question the I want to ask. Response that you're having in, in Japan. So let's get that point of view from Oksana, from a public health point of view. How do you, quote unquote, move on? How do you? start addressing this in a different way in 2022 than you were doing in 2021? Oh, well, there's a lot to unpick here. But um, one of the things to also highlight is that no one, on one hand, we aren't just saying many countries, yes, have, let's say, dropped the ball in other ways that you can slow down the spread of COVID. So, I'm worried that the narrative of the conversation we're having right now is that either we're all cold-hearted and we don't care and it's all mm -hmm. glib and we're happy for people to die because there well, less, the, there aren't the, the same case. type of draconian lockdowns, right? Uh, th but there's more. It's, you don't only have the option of draconian lockdowns. You can have 
air filtration. Uh, you can have uh, ensuring that there are other types of treatments available. You can still encourage people to have support when they isolate. You can still use things like uh, face masks, et cetera. Those are all the tools that are available to us. So I think that's where the balance lies. It's not saying uh, COVID's totally overdue nothing. Uh, I think some countries have done a really good job of ensuring that um, in addition to now having this booster campaign over the winter with the bivalent booster to add up that uh, a boost in immunity, that's a really important, and then vaccine plus. So uh, again, we don't need to completely polarize it to say, if you're not doing lockdown, you're not doing anything because that, that's not fair to a lot of other countries. Um, but it's really a, a blended approach. So I think that uh, in terms of, again, the, the unrest that we're seeing, that's a result of, of uh, the kind of more extreme ways to deal with health issues. But one thing that's interesting is that all over the world, even in countries where there's more, um, let's say, state media censorship, the issue of anti-vax has not gone away. So there is some distrust of the vaccines um, in China, just as we have seen that distrust in every other country. So I think this is a moment to try and learn from each other in terms of how do we continue to build trust within um, really experts in science and medicine. So that's a coming together point uh, around really using the tools that are available to us. Uh, Oksana, Oksana if I can jump in, since you, since you talk about the tools that are available, um, you mentioned the importance of vaccination. Uh, currently, 80-year-olds, 66%, just under 70% of 80-year-olds in China are fully vaccinated. Compare that to, and only 40% have had a booster. Uh, compare that to about 90% for the same age group, for, sorry, for seniors, for seniors in, say, the U.S. How important is it to increase vaccination coverage in China? Well, it, it, that would, uh, again, we have, a, I believe, 1.4 billion people who, who are vaccinated, but there are two elements of this, the, the efficacy of the vaccines that are used, and also, as you said, that, that most vulnerable age gap, where they're most likely to have the most severe consequences of COVID, there is this um, lack in uptake or other vaccination delivery failure, and that needs to be uh, again, that's a big vulnerability spot within the, the, the COVID um, strategy, and it could be why uh, the rationale for the types of uh, responses that we have seen. However, uh, and if does there China are need to change vaccines? Does China need to switch to mRNA vaccines, which you seem to be alluding to earlier? Would that make a significant difference in your view? I think so, certainly. Uh, I mean, there, that, that is one aspect. It's okay, not the, Oksana, you know, I, I've listened to what you said, but I, I don't country. understand. Okay, where are you coming from with this idea that these vaccines, I mean, the Lancet, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, they've all come out and said that if you've had four instances, either had COVID or you've had any mix of, of vaccines and you've had four of them, they have the same efficacy, whether they're uh, the Chinese vaccine or other countries or mRNA. So wh where are you getting this idea uh, that somehow no, so, yeah, uh, mRNA are, are superior? Yes, we do see that there is better I, I mean, coverage I, I, I with I talked the to the former number two at WHO, and he, he's, he's assured me that this is correct, and I also read it up on the journal. So which journal are you referring to? Which study are you referring to when you say that mRNA is uh, uh, in, in total after four more uh, effective than uh, a mixture of these? 
Well, certainly the bivalent booster that has become more available. There has been uh, recent publications in uh, JAMA. You're talking about. So, so there's JAMA? a publication in JAMA as well. Yeah, that that highlights the, the efficacy which... gap. Now, it is difficult, I will say, because there has been some transparency um, surrounding issues around the Sinovac and Sinopharm. So to have more of the, we would love to have more transparency on that aspect, but there are studies that indicate there's uh, the mRNA is the superior vaccine. Alicia, you, if, you I can, if I can jump in, UAE, I want to bring in Alicia. You've been denied access? Sorry, guys, I, I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to cut this just a little bit short, uh, respectfully. I want to bring in Alicia. Um, from the economic standpoint, because this is the third major pillar that you really have got to factor in here to provide a, a countrywide response, uh, most of the economic forecasts are, forecast, are basing their forecasts for Chinese growth in 2023 on the assumption that China is going to open up um, and most forecasting houses believe that would happen in the second half of 2023. Now, why, why do you make that assumption? Are there, are there factors there that let you believe that's going to be the case, or do you just assume that that would be a, a reasonable response from the Chinese government? Well, I mean, most uh, analysts are expecting the Chinese government to, to engage in a massive um, vaccination campaign basically uh, that because independently on on the efficacy of the vaccines let's just think of increasing the vaccine the the, the vaccination ratio yeah especially for elderly so it it seems to me a no brainer that this is something china can do thus i think when comparing the number of deaths to be frank i think I, and I'm an economist, I, but the only thing I, I have to say is that there is a before and an after, and that's when vaccinations were ready. And even if there's been additional uh, cash for this after the vaccination rate, they're of course uh, less. So I guess China will have to cope with that as everybody else, but it will have to be after the vaccination rate is as high as it has been elsewhere, say, let's take Singapore or, or, or any, you know, many, many countries in the world. So, so, so this I, is interesting. This shows the, us the that underlying assumption vaccination rate is much higher. All right. So, Alicia, you were saying vaccination rate is one aspect that economists look at to see um, what measures Beijing might take that would impact the economy. What other measures are economists looking at? Basically, the degree of mobility. So, what we've learned very clearly in the European case, second wave, i.e. Delta, and much more so with Omicron, is that you could have much more targeted measures, mm -hmm. i.e. reduce mobility much less and still have an efficient COVID policy. So I think that's the other thing. Can China find ways in which still keeps um, uh, cases at bay but in a way develops immunity because that's another important issue. You need to get to that immunity level and 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 therefore avoid deaths, but at the same time uh, harm the economy less. That's the question. Einar, do you expect that in 2023, do you expect that next year uh, China and Xi Jinping might finesse their policy mix to deal with COVID? Well, I, I still think that we're dealing with it from a scientific uh, perspective, um, and and they are not without fault. I mean, a year ago, last fall, uh, they took their foot off the gas in terms of getting uh, people vaccinated. And the fact is that 
uh, regardless of what vaccine you get, six months after you've had uh, your last booster or your original uh, two shots, uh, the efficacy has gone down dramatically, and you can check that with the, on the science side. And you, so you have to have basically every six months another booster. And uh, China hasn't had that. Uh, the people who did get it, it's in many cases year, year and a half since they've had their original shots. Uh, they need to get boosted. So uh, China's internal uh, target, I believe, is 60% vaccinated within the last six months, uh, either whether booster or original ones. Obviously, they're going after the low-hanging fruit in terms of the elderly. There's about 24 million um, elderly who have not ever been vaccinated. And absolutely, what Alicia has uh, referenced, this mobility issue, very much on their mind. That's why they've been trying not to have these kind of wholesale lockdowns. It's a tricky thing. And as I said, if they had the kind of medical uh, facilities to deal with it, they would do it. But, you know, the reason I was being difficult, Cyril, is that uh, right now you have seven other countries that have many more deaths, including Austria with a fraction mm -hmm. of the, of the uh, population. You have South Korea, uh, Japan, Taiwan. No one's talking about that. They have far more deaths. Uh, in the case of Taiwan, 30 times more deaths, 20 times more deaths. I mean, and it just seems odd that China is always the one that's being blamed as somehow the villain in this when they've been in, in the past more successful. Yes, I agree. Right. They have to uh, adjust. All right. Well, look, thank you very much. Absolutely nobody here is calling or framing China as a villain. And you will have noticed that COVID policies around the world in all countries, not just China, are not exactly something that we underreport. It's something that we look at pretty forensically across the world. But Einar, we heard all your arguments and we always appreciate a robust conversation here on Al Jazeera. So I want to thank all our guests, Einar Tangen, Alicia Garcia Herrero and Oksana Pizik. And that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Joseph John, Nihad El-Abidi, Aysaba Mirzaeva, and Jimmy Getahun. Studio sound was by Philip Morrison. The program was edited by Ahmed Edfaga, Lin Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Friday.